This Sunday is Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday of the liturgical year. It's a, a day of celebration. We're celebrating the, the rule of Christ, that all that God has done over this year of our expectancy and openness has, has culminated in Christ's enthronement in our lives. And, and yet, I don't think we can offer our words of celebration without grounding them in a sense of grief about for the ways in which we have failed to be true to what this Sunday is, to, to what it means for Christ to be king. I think our sacrifices of praise have to be salted with grief for our failures and the failures of those who've used our names to do evil and compassion for those who've suffered under leaders, rulers, kings, governors, judges, officers of the law, rules, laws that are not true to the spirit of Jesus. So I, I'm, I'm deeply conflicted and I, I, I'm sure you can hear it in me. I've tried to record this over and over and over again and keep having to, to start again because, and I won't, I won't start again. I'm, I'm making that promise to you and to myself um, because I'm not going to get it right. I, I can't, I can't strike the note I'm trying to strike because I do think we want to celebrate Christ as King. We want, we want to, we want to take that language seriously and, and celebrate that Christ is Lord, that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we want to do it with the right kind of grounding in the right tone. We want to do it in ways that are true to the spirit of Jesus. The gospel reading for Sunday is from the gospel of John, which I think is, is a glorious text. And I think points right to the truth we need to hear and need to bear witness to. But I think it's important that we acknowledge that the this text has been used by Christians and by people who were using Christians to do unspeakable evils against Jewish people. That and that nothing good is gained by ignoring or overlooking or forgetting the history of Christian abuses of this text and the ways in which Christian rulers, and here I'm not thinking only about kings, but any authority at any level of society who's acted in Christ's name in ways that are false to Christ's spirit. So, so with that kind of orientation, let's, let's look at the text. And then I want to look at a homily by Pope Benedict XVI and talk a little bit about the history of the day, Christ the King Sunday, and then come back to the other texts that are in the reading for some, the readings for Sunday. So this is John 18, 33 to 37. Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own? Or did others tell you about me? And so you'll notice we've got questions answering questions. Pilate replies, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? And you, you can hear the accusation in Pilate that has been exploited by Christians and those who were using Christians to, to level 
oppression against the Jews, against Jewish people all over the world. Jesus answers that question with this claim that is easily misread and has often been misread. My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So first, the Jews in the Gospel of John is not a reference to the Jewish people. Everyone, I mean, not Pilate, but Jesus, his disciples, his neighbors, his family, and, and also his enemies, they're all Jews. So the Jews is, is a technical term for a particular group of people. So when Jesus is saying, my disciples are fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews, of course, his disciples are also Jews. So this is not a, a statement about the Jewish people as Jewish people, but about this particular group, perhaps people from Judea. Regardless of who they are, it's, it's not some kind of anti-Jewish statement in Jesus' mouth. The other, the other part of his statement that can be misread and often is misread is his statement that my kingdom is not from this world. That does not mean that my kingdom is spiritual, not political, or that my kingdom is about the individual soul and not about the body politic or about society or culture at large. Jesus is not saying I'm only concerned about the private life of the individual and what happens in their soul and what determines their ultimate destiny in heaven or hell. And I'm not concerned about what goes on in the world. I mean, that that's bogus. We should all know it is bogus. What he means is pretty clear, I think, from what he goes on to say. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting. My kingdom is not from here. Meaning, I don't rule in the way that other rulers rule. I don't rule through violence. I don't rule through domination. I don't rule through forcing my will on others. And Pilate is befuddled by this. So you are a king? In other words, I don't know what you're telling me, Jesus. Do you mean you are a king or that you're not? And Jesus underscores it with, with a kind of riddle. You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. So first, notice he says, you say that I'm a king. So Jesus is drawing attention, and the gospel is drawing our attention, to the ways in which the word king in our mouth means something different than the word king means in Jesus' mouth. That when I say king, what I imagine that to mean is opposed to what he means when he says the same word. And Jesus then under, kind of underwrites that or underscores it, as I said, because he says, I came into the world for one, one purpose, and that is to testify to the truth. And what's, what's being contrasted here, I think, is power and truth. In other words, you think I'm a king, meaning I have the power to get my will enforced on others. I'm telling you, no, I came to bear witness to what's real. My kingship is a kingship that is attuned to the truth as it is in God, attuned to creation as it is in God. And therefore, everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. In other words, my followers, the people who own me as king, the people who celebrate me as their king, celebrate me as king because they're true and they know the truth of who I am to them. There's no violence in my kingship. So that what Christ is asserting here and what Pilate cannot hear 
and what even all these years later most of us cannot hear, is that Christ's kingship is not enforced on us from above. It's not a, a violation of anyone, and it's not accomplished through violence. But Christ's kingship simply is the relation he has to us as the source of our being, as the one who sustains us, the one who leads us into the fullness of life. So I, I think when this, the, this, was, this feast day was first established in 1925, Pope by Pope Pius XI, his encyclical that kind of declared this feast day, he got this point, and there, I'm going to quibble with some of what he said, but I think he got this point exactly right, and he got it by appealing to a saying of Cyril of Alexandria, so he says, the foundation of this power and dignity of our Lord, this is, this is Pope um, Pius, the power and dignity of our Lord is rightly indicated by Cyril of Alexandria. Christ, he says, has dominion over all creatures, a dominion not seized by violence nor usurped, but his by essence and by nature. And then Pius goes on, his kingship is founded upon the ineffable hypostatic union. From this, the, ju- the joining of divine and human in him personally, from this it follows not only that Christ is to be adored by angels and human beings, or men, but that to him, as man, angels and men are subject and must recognize his empire. By reason of the hypostatic union, Christ has power over all creatures. By reason of the hypostatic union, by the ways in which Christ has become us, and become our truth, right? We are what we are because Christ has assumed what we are. Christ has become human, and we therefore are the humans we are. We are human, and we're human in the way that we are. All things are what they are because Christ has become a creature. God, the divine, has taken on the creaturely, has taken on the human. And I think that's, I think that's exactly, exactly right. But, but, it's important to realize the ways in which that can so easily turn the wrong way. And I think in, in this encyclical, he goes on to argue in the next paragraph, Pius does, by insisting that Christ's lordship is universal and it's judicial and it's executive. And so like in the last line of that, Uh, that paragraph. He says, executive power too belongs to Christ, for all must obey his commands. None may escape him, nor the sanctions he has imposed. And and earlier, he says, those that this is sufficiently clear from the scriptural testimony, this universal dominion of our Redeemer, and it is a dogma of faith that Jesus Christ was given not only as our Redeemer, but also as a lawgiver to whom obedience is due, He claimed judicial power as received from his father when the Jews accused him of breaking the Sabbath by the miraculous cure of a sick man. And then he quotes from the Gospel of John, Jesus saying, Neither neither doth the Father judge any man, but hath given all judgment to the Son. And I'll come back to this line at the end of the reflections. But you you can see here that, that Pius is making the claim that it's because of the hypostatic union that Jesus, God, has taken on human being has become one with us, has established at the core of of his own life the reality of all things. And because of that, he is king. He is ruler. But then when he unpacks what ruling means, 
He appeals to our experience of judicial power and executive power, legal power, and it's implied also martial power, police power. All of that power that we know from, so to speak, day-to-day experience to explain what it is that Christ has in infinite degree. But I think that's a I think that's a basic mistake. And to get at that, I want to look at not only the other texts in the reading, but also a sermon from another pope, Pope Benedict XVI, on Christ the King Sunday in November 2005. So this was a homily that the pope gave. And I know this may seem scattered right now, but as I said, I'm not going to start over. I'm not going to record it again. Just stick with me. I think it'll come clear. So Benedict XVI, is preaching on Christ the King, and in the middle of his homily, I'm not going to read it all, you can find it easily enough online, in the middle of his homily, he quotes another pope. So this is the third pope we're referencing here, Pope Pope Paul VI. And he's quoting from one of Pope Paul's encyclicals about what it means, what Jesus, how Jesus is related to history, right? And then Benedict goes on to unpack that claim, to show what he takes it to mean. So, this is Benedict XVI quoting Pope Paul VI. The Lord is the goal of human history, the focal point of the desires of history and civilization, the center of mankind, the joy of all hearts, and the fulfillment of all aspirations. It is he whom the Father raised from the dead, exalted and placed at his right hand, constituting him judge of the living and the dead. Animated and drawn together in his spirit, we press onwards on our journey towards the consummation of history, which fully corresponds to the plan of his love, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. And then Benedict, referencing that quote from Paul VI, says that this is the church's mission, yesterday, today, and forever, to proclaim and witness to Christ so that the human being, every human being, may totally fulfill his or her vocation. That's what he takes to mean for Christ to be Lord, that when Christ is Lord, when Christ is King, when Christ is enthroned as King and adored as King, then each human being and every human being fulfills, totally fulfills his or her vocation. And I think that's precisely right. And, And that is what we want to celebrate, that when, because Christ is the truth of all things, Christ is what makes the truth true and the beautiful, beautiful, and the good, good, and makes me, me, and you, you, justice, just, and so on, because Christ is the goodness that makes reality real. We can see him as the goal of history. We can see him as the one who fulfills and in whom all things are fulfilled. He fulfills all things and in him all things find that fulfillment. And he does, in fact, in Christ, Christ, God does, in fact, unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. But just to draw attention to what I think should trouble us a bit is the language of civilization and the language of goal. The goal of human history and the desire of civilization. There's a way in which, of course, it's true, but given what we've done with that language, given what we in the name of Christ have done with the language of civilization and the goal of history, we have, to, we have to grieve, even as we celebrate Christ's lordship, we have to grieve what we've done in the name of his lordship. We have to recognize that we have 
done all kinds of evil and failed to do all kinds of good that could have been done because we were more concerned about civilization than we were with our neighbor. We are more concerned with abstractions like America or our movement or our party or our tribe, fill in the blank, whatever it is, whatever identity it is that gives meaning to our lives. We've, we've failed to do so much good in the name of protecting that reality. And we've done so much evil, actively done evil in the name of protecting or furthering that abstraction. And so I, I, I completely agree with what Benedict is saying, that where Christ is Lord, all creatures are brought to their fullness. I agree with Pope Paul and Pope Paul VI and Pope Pius XI that Christ's enthronement means we answer to him and, and that we must answer to him. But I, I want to underscore the ways in which that's true because Christ's lordship is unlike every other lordship. That what we celebrate in Christ as king is the difference from all other kingdoms and the difference between all other authorities and his authority. That he does not rule as anyone else is ruled. He does not rule through violence. He does not rule through threat. He does not rule through domination or humiliation. He rules by giving himself to us. And it would be easy for this, it would be easy for this to be cliched. And I know in some circles, uh, well, I say I know. It, it seems to me that in some circles, we're we're too quick to be to, to take the language of empire and and criticize it. We're too quick to to be anti-establishment. We're too quick to identify Jesus with the marginal and the outsider. Not because he isn't. Of course he is, and I'll say more about that in a moment. But because there's a way in which that is less about openness to Jesus and the kingdom of God and more about hatred for the people we're associated with. I mean, I think, to put it really bluntly, I think some of us, we, we do not so much love God and love neighbor as we hate the form of, li the form of life we've been given. We hate privilege. We hate power. We hate the center of power. And some of us for good reason. Some of us because we've suffered that. Others of us because we've been at the center of it and we know it's emptiness. Others of us because we're not quite at the center of it, but close enough to resent not being at the center of power. But regardless, what matters here is not hatred for the centers of power and hatred for the powerful. We, we can't deal in abstractions like the marginalized we have to we have to love people we have to recognize that god calls us to love him and love our neighbor and that abstractions are the work of the enemy and we we've got to be leery again i'm stumbling over my words here because i don't i don't know how to articulate this rightly i'm not going to strike the right note but i i do think especially for those of us who were raised in conservative circles, politically and religiously, kind of white evangelical circles in America, there can we can develop a distaste for that for reasons I've suggested and many, many more reasons that I haven't named. We can develop a distaste for that and then pick up language of critique 
and think that we're speaking about the kingdom of God when really we're just talking about the, the breaking down of the kingdoms of this world. But it's not enough to want to see the end of the kingdoms of this world. We have to want to see the kingdom of our God and see the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God. So let, let, me, let, me, let me come to that then. With that in mind, let me come back to the texts. The first is the reading from 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel, I'm sorry. 2 Samuel, which are the last words of David. And I'm not, I'm not going to read it. You can read it um, on your own. 2 Samuel 23, 1-7. But they are they're David's dying words. And, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it simply to say, I do think it's really important to point out that Christ's coming as king, Christ is the son of David, but Christ's coming, of king, coming as king depends upon the end of David's reign. Right. So David is the one who reigns through bloodshed. He's the one who, who rises to power through the stripping away of Saul and who lays claim to that power through his victories that stain his hands with blood. And especially in Samuel, less so in Chronicles, but especially in Samuel, David is shown to be a deeply flawed man, not just a deeply flawed father, but also a deeply flawed king. And here he is on his deathbed. And I do think there's a way in which the word of the Lord is that Christ, David's son, cannot come until David is dead. Right Until David is in his bed, there's no room for Christ in the cradle. And in that way, I do think it's important that we say the coming of Jesus will mean the end of the kingdoms we have made. Last week's reading in the gospel was Mark 13. And Jesus, sitting opposite the temple, says to the disciples who were kind of uh, agape at the glories of the temple, not one stone will be left upon another. But Jesus is not saying that in any way that he's not gloating over the destruction of the temple. He just cleansed it to make room for it to be a place of prayer for all peoples. Jesus is not rejoicing in the coming down of the temple. He's not a terrorist, right? He's not, he's not Guy Fawkes. He's not trying to bring the center of power down and, and therefore make a new future possible. Jesus is not gloating that the temple will fall, but he is saying that the temple falling is the birth pang of the new, right? That, that the coming of Christ, his own coming as Lord, begins in the end of these things we have made. That when what we have made that is unjust, and Jesus is very clear that this particular temple, not, not the house of worship that God called Moses to make, or that David wanted to make, or that Solomon made, but this particular temple is being kept by the exploitation of the poor. Still, what Jesus is rejoicing in is that there is a coming, that, that he is going to be enthroned as Lord, and that the fall of this temple, not one stone left upon another, is a result of those contractions. Or if not a result, it's somehow somehow related to the, the contractions of the coming of his own kingship. As I said last Sunday in the sermon, like when the world as we've built it starts to crumble, we can trust that Christ's authority is rising, that Christ is crowning, that the head has appeared, that he his own rulership is being established precisely where the unjust rules we have made are breaking down. But I, I, don't, I don't want you to hear me as simply espousing some kind of anti-establishment 
account. I don't think the coming of Jesus is as simple as the coming apart of the world as we've known it, the the, the fall of our structures of authority. I'm not anti-institutional, and I don't think Scripture is, and I don't think the people of God should be. I think part of taking the will of God seriously is to realize this doesn't all come down to individual persons and their souls. And then if, if we care about bodies and we care about people, people's bodies and their conditions of life, where they live, what we do when they're sick, what we do when they're dying, we have to care about institutions. We have to be able to think not just about individuals, but about peoples. We have to be able to think about groups. All of that, I think, is essential. So I'm not in this way you know, anarchic, right? I, I don't, I don't think, and I don't think scripture is, or that the way of God allows for us to be that. But I do think we have to be open to the ways in which the, the coming of God does mean the coming apart of much of what we cherished and loved. And we can't be afraid of that. And we have to learn to do what David does here, which is in his deathbed, turn attention away from himself to the God who's coming, right? And he begins the prayer by talking about himself, right? The Spirit of the Lord speaks through me. I am the anointed of God. I am the favored favored one of Israel, the favored one of the strong one of Israel. But he slowly turns attention to this God, the rock of Israel. And I think that that's a model for us that those of us who are in positions of authority or or who might be or are close to those positions of authority we have to realize that what we've made will come down again david has to be in his deathbed david has to die before christ is in his cradle but there is a way of dying gracefully we can die to our powers right that we, and with all that we've done right or wrong all that we've built, right or wrong, we can die to it gracefully. And, and that, that I think, is part of what David is, is witnessing here. And again, I'm not going to run through all the possible examples, but I think that, that's true nationally. I mean, I think so many people right now in our, in our churches, in our, in our families, are eaten up with arguments around nationalism, arguments about America, like whatever you think about that at the end of the day, you have to be willing to, to, to let it die. And you have to be willing to die with it the way David dies, more and more recognizing the goodness of God that's not dependent upon your goodness, that's not dependent upon your faithfulness, that God is God and God is faithful, and that you sustaining your kingdom is not necessary to God's will being done in the world. And I think that, again, that applies to us not, not only nationally, politically, but it applies to our movement and whether you are concerned about the spirit-filled movement or you're concerned about issues of scripture, scriptural authority, whatever the movement is that you feel matters because so much is at stake, just remember that can die and God's will can still be done in the world, right? You, you have to be willing to let it die. So what, what, we have to be we have to be very careful about the causes we get caught up with. It's not to say we can never participate in causes, but always to remember that they're they're penultimate, nothing more than penultimate, and that 
we there has to be a willingness a willingness in us to let David die, and if we are David, to die, and to die in ways that acknowledge the God who has been gracious to us, but whose ways are not our ways and whose thoughts are not our thoughts. So with that said, let me come back as I start to wrap up. Let me come back to Revelation, the the New Testament reading, the epistle reading for Sunday, which is Revelation one. 4 to 8. Grace to you and peace from him who who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So I think in this text, which again has a, has a history of, of bad reading, not only bad readings, but also bad readings, it's, it's easy to miss the promise that's here, right? So this, I, you can hear this as a kind of, text of revenge or of promised revenge, threatened revenge, that he is coming with the clouds, which is a reference back to Daniel 7, which is the alternate reading for this track two reading for this Sunday Old Testament. He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. And and there's a, there's a way of hearing that as bad news, or again, as a threat of revenge. But I don't think we should hear it that way at all because of who is coming that he is the one, and he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the king of the earth. And the faithful witness to what? To the truth of who God is and who we are in God and to God because of who God is. He's the faithful witness to the truth. And that's a truth that death and violence and suffering and persecution cannot efface, cannot destroy. His kingdom, in the language of Daniel, his kingdom will not pass away his kingship will never be destroyed. Notice, not that he will destroy all other things, but it cannot be destroyed because there is no violence, there is no power, not even the power of death. All the powers of evil arrayed against God can do nothing. He's the faithful witness to that truth as the one born from the dead, raised from the dead as the first of many, the first of all. And he is the one who's the ruler of the kings of the earth. So when we're told that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail, I think we should hear this as a promise, not of revenge, but of reconciliation and restitution and rectitude. God will make right. Even those who pierced him will answer for it in a way that will heal them of what they've done will will right the wrongs they've done to him. Not that he's coming back to do to them what they did to him, but to, he's coming back so that the wounds they made in him can be for their healing. They pierced him. He's not piercing them in response. He's allowing those who pierced him to be healed by the wounds they made in him. And, and this is, I'll, I also hear good news in this line that all the tribes of the earth will wail. First, all the tribes. He's not coming back as a tribal chieftain, winning for the few against the many. He's coming back as Lord of all. 
but he's coming back as Lord of all first to show us the ways in which we've all been false to him. In our own ways, we've all pierced him. And so we all will answer, not only for what we've done against him, but what we've done to anyone, because what we do to anyone else, we are doing to him. Any wrong we've done to anyone is a wrong done to Jesus, including wrongs we do to ourselves. And all of us who've pierced Jesus in various ways, who've crucified him afresh in various ways, will be given the chance not only to face the truth of what we've done, but to be made true, to make right what we did wrong. And so all the tribes of the earth will wail, but the wailing is not the last word. Right? So yes, there's wailing. Yes, there's a sense in which the temple's wall, temple walls come down, but that's penultimate. That's not the last. It's the beginning of the last. The last is the one who is almighty, the one who is Alpha and Omega. So the good news is that every eye will see him, even those of us who pierced him. The good news is that all the tribes of the earth will wail, but the wailing is not last. He will wipe away every tear. He's the firstborn from the dead. So that brings me back to the kings of the earth. So in Revelation, you can look this up on your own, but the kings of the earth again and again are named as the enemies of the Lamb. They're the ones who array themselves against the, against the Lamb. And he destroys them. And at the end of the book, he destroys them utterly. And they are feasted upon by the birds of the air. And then suddenly at the very, very end, we're told that the gates of the city are open and the kings of the earth flood in, bringing their glory to the Lamb. But we've just been told, right, that there are no kings of the earth left. They've all been destroyed. So what's happened? Well, I think what's happened is... The kings of the earth have been destroyed in the sense that he's brought his mercy to bear on them and has destroyed in them all that is false. The truth has happened to them. And now everything that was false in them has been set right, has been made right. They've, they've had their chance to face the fact that they pierced him and to answer for what they've done. They wailed and then he wiped their tears from their eyes. Because remember, the kings of the earth all die but he's the firstborn of the dead. He's already dead with them and dead for them. And in his death, he's triumphed over their wickedness too and has redeemed them. The Master and Margarita is one of my favorite novels. It's absolutely bizarre. Many I've recommended it to many people and you know, lots of people have come back with, I, don't, I have no idea what to do with any of that. But the end of the book, and I won't go into the details, you can, hopefully you'll read it on your own, but at the end of the book, Pilate is a character in the novel. Pilate, it turns out, has been waiting all of this time. He's been trapped in a kind of purgatory, waiting all of this time to get to meet with Jesus again, to get to answer for what he did when Jesus was before him. And one of the one of the lines of story in the in the in the novel is that there is a master, a, a novelist who's writing his his masterpiece about Pilate, and at the very end of the novel, you the, the lines finally draw together, and you realize that the completion of the the novel the master is trying to write will be known when it frees Pilate to do what Pilate has always wanted to do, which is to go back and see Jesus again, to meet with this man Jesus of Nazareth. And, and respond rightly, respond faithfully. And so at the very end, 
Margarita, the the master's lover, gets to gets to shout it out. Right, that at last you're free. And Pilate, the the mountains shake, and there's thunder. And Pilate is suddenly there's a path lit, and he's able to to stumble his way down this path toward Jesus to meet him again. That I think is what we're all promised. That we we will get a chance, and not just someday. Today, right? This is not an anticipation of some point further down the timeline. Although I, I suppose, in a sense, that's true too, in that we all die, we all come face to face with God in some fullest sense. But even now, that is the that is already bearing on us. That reality is always already here, already impinging on us. And the Almighty's kingdom is already at hand. Christ is already crowning. So when we talk about Christ as king, we talk about Christ enthroned as king of kings and lord of lords, it's essential that we remember the way in which he comes to us, that he comes to us in smallness and hiddenness. He comes to us in humility. He comes to us as this babe on his mother's breast. He comes to us not with violence, not with force, not with demands, but simply as a witness to the truth, the truth of who God has made us to be. And so, as I end, I'll I'll circle back on the words of Pope Pius XI when he, the encyclical that kind of instituted this, this feast in the beginning, that line, I read it to you earlier and I told you I would come back to it. That Jesus claimed judicial power as received from his father when the Jews accused him of breaking the Sabbath by the miraculous cure of a sick man. And again, the quote from the Gospel of John, For neither doth the father judge any man, but hath given all judgment to the son. This is the key point, right? As I said, I think... The Pope is trying to make a point about judgment and is arguing from our experience of the judicial and police power and so on. But I think the point of the Gospel of John is that the sign that the Son has been given all power, that he has the right of judgment, is that he breaks the Sabbath rules we've made to to cure a sick man. That's what the kingdom of God's coming means. It's not spiritual. It is the breaking through the false rules we've made, the the structures of authority that we've made that actually harm people. The coming of Jesus breaks through that, breaks what we've made of the Sabbath in order to fulfill the Sabbath by curing the sick. The sick that we aren't caring for because we're too concerned about keeping our rules. That's what it means for the Son to have judgment. That's what it means for the Son to come. That's what it means for the Son to come as King. And so, let David die. And if you are David, die the way David died. Died with, at least in this, these words, acknowledging that God is God. Die open to the coming of the kingdom of God knowing that the one who's coming is the one who's been raised from the dead, and that there is no good thing that will be lost. No good thing that will be lost. And that no matter who you are in this story, whether you're David or you're the kings of the earth, 
whether you're the sick man who needs to be healed or you're the people who are judging others because you want to keep the Sabbath a particular way, whoever you are in the story, and you're probably all of those people in one way or another, Jesus is coming for you. And he's coming for you not to dominate you, not to violate you, but to be the truth of your being, to be the truth of who you are, to be life and light and goodness and joy. And that we can celebrate, even while we acknowledge all the ways in which we've been false to that calling. He's coming. And we we can rejoice in that. We we can rejoice that Christ, that Christ is King. But I'll, I'll say a prayer and then stop with it. Lord, thank you that you are King, that you're our King. Father, thank you that you've enthroned your Son, Spirit. Thank you that you've rested upon this one, Jesus, for our good. And help us, help us, Spirit, help us, Father, to be true to this one who is our King. Jesus, we want to be yours. We want to be like you. We want to rule and reign with you as you make room for us in your authority so that we can bring your life to bear in all the broken, shattered places of this world. Bring restoration and peace. We thank you for being who you are, for being the truth of who we are. Amen.